0: Hey, Andrew Talks to Chefs listeners, my new book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, is now available for pre-order. Follow the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstoschefs.com or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is podcast. And if you'd like to rate or review us and help new listeners find the pod, the best place for that is Apple podcast. Thank you very much. Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. Enjoy the show. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals, founded by Josh Sharkey, A chef and restaurant owner for more than 20 years, Mies addresses the actual processes of cooking, training, production, collaboration, and execution. And the basic version is free for the entire culinary industry. From chefs to mixologists, if you manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was built to make your pro-kitchen life easier. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. Get started by visiting GetMe's.com forward slash Andrew. That's getmee zcom forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura
1: This is Amanda Cohen This
0: is David Kinch This is Mike Anthony This is Huni Kim This is Amanda Freitag This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn This is Curtis This is Stephen Harris
1: This is Misty Robbins And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs We make the focaccia in-house We make the ice cream in-house We make the ricotta in-house The ricotta, you see first thing when you sit down with the focaccia, and then it's also in a pasta that we have on the menu, in the filling. That's a huge part of what we do here. Everything's house-made. I think if we bought the ricotta, it would feel less special. I don't know that everybody knows that the ricotta is made in-house. I don't know if that's being portrayed when they eat the pasta, but I think just us knowing that we made it feels a little bit more special and feels intentional.
0: That is the voice of Emily Swain, chef of Forsythia Restaurant in New York City. Emily is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you are doing okay out there today. Our guest today is Emily Swain of the Italian, specifically the Roman-inspired restaurant for Scythia in Lower Manhattan in New York City. I will get to my introduction of Emily in just a moment. I am coming to you today from the Boulderado Hotel in Boulder, Colorado. My son is about to begin his second year of college here at CU Boulder. He loves it here so much that he spent the summer here working. And I have to say, I don't blame him before he gets too buried with schoolwork and other activities. I decided to fly out for a few days to hang with him. And then I decided to stick around for two more days. If you've never been to Boulder, I highly recommend it until he came to school here. I hadn't been here since I was a little kid when I dragged uh, my mother to show me the Mork and Mindy house. (laughs) Um, That's basically all I even remember from that trip, but it's a beautiful city I've been here now three times in the last year. There are mountains everywhere you look. The weather is absolutely spectacular, even when the temperature hits the 90s, as it has done every day this week. There is great food and drink. There's great shopping. Uh, There's great walking. There are dispensaries. What's not to love? Soon as I post this show, the boy and I are going to go for a hike, and then we're going to go have a late lunch slash early dinner, And then I'm going to head to the Denver International Airport after a visit with some old friends from New York who are in Denver. And I'm going to get myself back to New York City. And uh, it's been quite a trip. It's been quite a trip. If you haven't been to Boulder before or you haven't been here in a while, I can't recommend it highly enough. My next goal is to come here in the winter. I've yet to be here when it was snowing and I can only imagine how beautiful it is here. So again, before I get to my introduction of Emily, I do have one other thing that I want to ask of you. And the question is, as it is here every week, have you checked out Mee's yet? And if not, what are you waiting for? I am telling you, Mee's will make your pro kitchen life easier. As you may know by now, Mee's is the recipe operating system for culinary professionals, What that means is that it is a place for you to house all of your recipes, to change them as necessary, to share them with your team, along with instructional photos and videos, if you like, as well as scale them and derive whatever information you need from them. Food costs, allergen data, yield loss, unit conversions, and nutritional breakdowns. If you are a chef, line cook, mixologist, operator, or in any way manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mee's was created just for you, by a former chef and restaurateur. That former chef and restaurateur is my friend, Josh Sharkey. And I am telling you this, and it's not just because he's my friend, and it's not just because Mies is a sponsor of the show. He and his team have created something really special. If you ask around, you'll probably encounter a colleague who has tried it and will tell you how much they get from it. And Mies, the basic version, is free for the entire culinary industry store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet if you upgrade to premium you can let me's make your entire business more efficient and centralized train and onboard team members manage production and you can even process your invoices through it and as a listener of Andrew Talks to Chefs you receive 25 free recipe uploads and breakdowns on your new Mies account by signing up today. Learn more at dot com forward slash Andrew. I will not be offended if you pause the podcast and go check it out. You can get there by typing in the address I just read you or if you go to the episode page for today's show at andrewtalksthechefs.com or the episode description wherever you get your podcast. You can simply click through the link in the show description for this episode. So our guest today, as I've said twice now, is Emily Swain. Emily is the chef of Forsythia Restaurant in New York City. When I have a lot of interviews banked, as I do now, I sort of look at it as a DJ set. Sometimes I want to be eclectic as I move from one episode to the next, but other times I want to string together conversations that have some overlapping elements and I think complement each other. This is one of those latter stretches. I think Emily's interview with me is a great complement to the last two feature interviews we aired with Mark Vetri and Amanda Schulman. While Emily doesn't herself have a connection with those two chefs, all three of them are Americans with an affinity for Italy. Two of the three are career switchers, and each one's approach to their food is distinct despite their shared inspirations. Forsythia, if you don't know, is fashioned after a Roman trattoria. It co-mingles classic and Romanesque dishes on a pasta-rich menu, but is not just a pasta restaurant. I ate there for the first time recently and was really impressed, so much so that I was back just a few weeks later for more. And I already have plans to accompany a friend of mine there in a couple of weeks based on some texting we were doing the other day. And as you'll learn in a moment, Emily herself was originally actually headed for the art world and then course corrected to the Pro Kitchen. She's worked in restaurants in New York City, Westchester County, and Europe, and took her post at Forsythia just a little more than a year ago. I had never met Emily before this interview. I think you're going to Excuse me, that was a little noise, compliments of my son in the background. Declan, I promised you I wasn't, hey, what are you doing? (laughs) Okay, he's sorry. I'm not going to edit that out because I'm in a hotel and I don't have time to do that today. In any event, uh, I found Emily to be uh, really thoughtful. I found her story to be uh, unique in its way. And again, we get into uh, the food at the restaurant, especially those pastas, because I really do think the pastas at Forsythia are exceptional. I don't think I need to say anything else about this conversation, except that, as always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Emily Swain. Here you go. Okay, so Emily, we are here, we are outside. For Scythia, i just had dinner here last night i loved it as you know we'll talk about that in a minute before we get into it i was surprised when i got here last night because it was my first time dining here the the rooms the number of spaces here can you just give listeners sort of a virtual i mean you don't have to say where everything is but like a, a little bit of a quickie what are the different spaces here and what are the different things on offer here at the restaurant
1: It's kind of funny because we actually bought these stanchions, and we call them Stanchions on Stanton, and it's literally red ropes that we put outside the pasta room because nobody knows where to go when they first come here. So the main dining room has the open kitchen and the bar, and that's when you first walk in. And then we built out this pergola. This was before my time. It started as a pop-up, and they started with just, like, 20 seats inside. Then they built out the pergola, and then we took over... This used to be a cleaner's next door. So when I oh, first started, wow. yeah, what's so, now
0: the pasta room?
1: Yeah. So when I first started, the pasta room was totally empty. Mm-hmm. And Jake was just making pasta. The owner was making pasta in there. And eventually he wanted it to be like a pasta lab. And you would see the pasta being made during the day. And then that would get people interested. Mm-hmm. And he does all the pasta classes here. He was really inspired by pasta making in Rome. And that's how it all started just the pasta lab, pasta room. And now, Ostroberta makes our pasta in-house every day, and that's what's happening next door during the day. And then, in the main dining room, we do prep and other things.
0: So, strictly evening here, right? You don't do brunch yeah, so on the we weekends just do, or anything like
1: that? just do dinners Tuesday through Saturday.
0: The other thing I wanted to mention right at the top, before we get into your backstory, is... This restaurant came into my consciousness. You just mentioned pasta more than anything else as yeah. you were just talking. <laughs> this is not just a pasta restaurant. I had crudo last night. We mm-hmm. had a really good focaccia with three accompaniments mm-hmm. um, that were all delicious. We had this fried squash blossom with the india. Desserts I thought were great. And we had six amazing pastas. But yeah. it's far from just a pasta situation.
1: I think... When you first think about it, that's the main like word I think of is pasta, but it's definitely pulling from the seasons and everything's made in-house. So we make the focaccia in-house. We make the ice cream in-house. We make the ricotta in-house. The ricotta you see first thing when you sit down with the focaccia and then it's also in a pasta that we have on the menu In the filling. That's a huge part of what we do here. Everything's house made. I think if we bought the ricotta, it would feel less special. I don't know that everybody knows that the ricotta is made in-house. I don't know if that's being portrayed when they eat the pasta, but I think just us knowing that we made it feels a little bit more special and feels intentional.
0: I I don't think anyone told us it was house-made, but I assumed it was house-made. It was consistent with ricotta, but it wasn't exactly like every other ricotta. It seemed like something that had been made
1: in-house. When I first started here, that was a huge thing that my boss, Jake, was like, everything's house-made. We don't you know, order ice cream or anything like that. And just staying true to that throughout my time here has been, I mean, it's nice because I'm like, we make this in-house. I know how this was made. For example, the pre-dessert right now is a strawberry sorbet. If you get the strawberries from the market, we make a puree and it's super simple and fresh and it's delicious. And you just get a bite of it and it's just a taste of summer. Well, I also
0: (laughs) think just the presence of, I mean, we could call that an intermezzo, right? Just the presence of that, This is a casual restaurant. I was surprised by that. I thought that was a really nice, um, menschy kind of touch.
1: I think as the restaurant has evolved, we've, you know, when you up the prices of something, we're like, okay, let's give them a little treat here, a little treat there to make it seem like we're taking care of them. So something like a pre-dessert or something like a focaccia isn't listed on your menu, but you're getting it and you're like, wow, I didn't expect this. This was made in house and I'm getting it as a treat. Like, Mm -hmm. that's awesome.
0: And is there a dedicated pastry chef here, or is that under your auspices as well?
1: We do have a pastry chef. Her name is Mac. She's been here like before I've been here. She started as a cook. She was cooking the pastries here and kind of just took over the program, and we just collaborate together. We're like, what's in season? What do we need on the menu? A lot of people that come in here look for a dairy-free dessert, so we always have something that we can have for them. And then... Also, like my CDC Eddie helps her a lot with R and D and trying to figure out what works for how small the kitchen is and right. our production here,
0: New York City issues. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about your backstory if we can. Yeah. I saw what I've read about you. You're from. By the way, we should say this is your first podcast this interview. This is
1: my first podcast. <laughs> cheers. We
0: get <laughs> cheers. We're we're toasting with our coffee. Um, um, uh, we're glad to glad to get you over the hump, yeah. the podcast hump. Thanks
1: for having me. Yeah.
0: Um, but uh, from Larchmont, mm-hmm. born is that where you were your entire yeah. childhood yep. up through like late teens,
1: up through like late twenties. I stayed in Larchmont, living with my mom when I worked at Blue Hill. I mean, all my coworkers were living in Terrytown, and I had a nice home and. Larchmont to come home to, so it made sense at the time.
0: Growing up, um, what kind of kid were you? Were you a shy kid? Were you uh, an outgoing kid? Were you athletic? I know we're going to talk about art and your initial path toward that in a minute, but how did that figure in? Just give me a quick kind of picture of Emily as a kid.
1: I think I'm pretty introverted as a person with strangers, but with friends, I'm really social. Um, and artistic, for sure. My mom would push me into every sport and dance, and I was like, none of this is making any sense. And I think as a kid, like going to a drawing class was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm gonna go do this drawing class. Or I would go to like purchase and do a summer program. And my friends were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, just don't worry about it. I'm gonna go paint some nudes. Did
0: you think you wanted to be an artist?
1: I wasn't an amazing student. I just had trouble really focusing. And I could really focus on art. I was like, I can really sit down and draw this for hours, but I can't figure out this math problem. That wasn't for me. So originally I was like, okay, what can I go to school for? What am I good at? And I was really good at art. I took AP art. I put together a portfolio, and that's how I really got into colleges. That was my main sort of route.
0: When I hear you say what you just said, I feel like you, and I'm just wondering if this has ever come up in your life, I feel like you are talking about art versus academics. Yeah. The way a lot of people in your profession talk about cooking as a contrast to school. Yeah. That they, for whatever reason, they couldn't sit still in class, they were bored, their brains were like Teflon, stuff just slid right off put them in a busy kitchen and for whatever reason, they were incredibly high functioning. Has that come up at all in conversation or have you observed that and did food, when you finally got to it, did you relate to it in a similar way?
1: Yeah, I think eventually I fell into just loving food. I was like, how do I bring people together in a creative way? And whether that was holidays with my family or just hanging out with friends, it was like, let me make something for you and see if you like it. And that was when Pinterest was coming out in high school and I was like, this looks really cool. Let me see if I can recreate this. I remember one time I made these cucumbers stuffed with crab and now looking at that, I'm like, oh my God, what was that? But when I made it then I was like, this is so artistic and cool. It was like one of those appetizer things. But yeah, I feel like the art world and the culinary world have a lot of things in common.
0: And food as a kid, I mean, you just mentioned it a little bit. Larchmont, at some point we'll talk about this. I just spent seven years in in Westchester County, so I kind of know what that's like. My kids were there until college, from age 11 to 18. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have a sense of what your childhood must have been like there. Not a huge restaurant scene, but also incredibly close to New York City. Did you go to restaurants much? Did you come into the city much to do that? Did you watch a lot of... I mean, somebody your age, there was a lot of food programming and chef-related programming. How much did any of that factor in?
1: Growing up, my mom had all of the Barefoot Contessa books, so that was a big inspiration for me. I remember watching Emerald in my mom's kitchen, that type of thing. But as far as food in Westchester, now I'm like, okay, Walters, Sal's, like these big, like, things that everybody loves going back to. I'm like, oh, that was, like, down the street for me. I'm so grateful that, like, now Walters has blown up. It's, like, this amazing establishment.
0: You're talking about the hot dog establishment, teams, owned by yeah. the brother-sister team. Yeah. Yeah, nobody outside of that area will know, but yeah. yes.
1: But it's you pretty. Sh- co- you should go check it out if, you, yes. if you're ever in Washington. If you West find <laughs> yourself a wedding,
0: I think they have two locations.
1: Yeah, now they do, and they do weddings and have food trucks now. Yeah. I mean, but their er- original one is amazing. That was, like, right across from the high school that I went to. But yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't really, like, go out to dinner too often. We would go into the city and go to plays and different... I mean I'm trying to think like Balthazar my mom introduced me to Lafayette is another one of her favorites so some of the classics she definitely knew Mm -hmm. but not until college I dragged my family to Del Posto and I was like we're gonna try this and they're like where are we why are there white tablecloths and I'm like just (laughs) sit down and we'll have an experience that was my first ever fine dining experience
0: so you go to Miami University in Ohio? Yeah. You went there for, what was it? I know it was so art it went, related, but what, what was your, do we even call it a major there?
1: Yeah, originally it was fine arts. And then I was like, what am I gonna do with this after school? And so I transitioned into art education. And at the time I was doing student teaching and I was like, I feel too like, young to be teaching right now. This feels like this isn't it. And I studied abroad in Florence. So my junior year I went to Florence took a cooking course there it didn't count towards anything but I was like I'm interested in food let me see how this goes and my instructor there was like you should go back and go to Johnson and Wales and I was like I'm not going to another four-year college but I'll look into something shorter term so I ended up going to the Institute of Culinary Education when it was on West 23rd and that was after I graduated from Miami with a art education degree
0: (laughs) so you never did anything with
1: it I did an internship at an art gallery in the upper east side but that wasn't even really utilizing that degree. I told my mom I was going to graduate, so I did.
0: <laughs> Westchester Large Mont these bring up certain probably stereotypical ideas of of mm-hmm. what one's family might want for a kid. Yeah. It's an area where there's a lot of emphasis on college. Oh mm-hmm. my god. Yeah. I mean crazy. Yeah. I thought. I mean, yeah. what I uh, like what my kids friends like the the stress, right? Yeah. What was I mean amongst your I mean your mom, uh, uh, your 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 friends like the notion that you were going to go to art school and then as a chaser you're going to go to culinary school? Yeah. how did that go over just in your circle?
1: At the time when I graduated from college, I feel like that was when. Restaurants were really a big deal. Instagram was blowing up. Everybody was posting where they were eating, posting what they were eating. It wasn't like a good picture, that, but they were like, "Look at this burger! I just ate," and that was what Instagram had started as. Mm-hmm. And so it it seemed cool to some people, but I remember when I was at this art gallery that I was working, I was telling everybody I was leaving and I was going to go to culinary school. And I remember this girl, Angela, looked up from her desk and was like, "So you're going to be a chef?" And I was like, "Yeah." And she's like. I have a friend who's a chef, and i never see him. And that was my first red flag, but I didn't see it as a red flag. I saw it as a challenge. But that was the first person that was like, this is going to be really hard. I hope you know that.
0: You've described yourself as a little introverted.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: art is something... I mean, I feel like writing is like this. If you're going to be serious about it, you're in for a little bit of solitude. If you want to really get to a place where you're creating stuff that, you know, is really good that you're really pouring yourself into was that even at all even if you had understood it as a red flag do you think you would have seen it as a red flag for you or do you think that you're kind of naturally wired for that kind of an existence
1: I think it was like a red flag because she was kind of saying you're never going to see your family you're never going to see your friends and I was like wait I didn't really realize that and now I'm like looking back I'm like okay it was kind of nice to know before I went into it because you really don't have a chance to see the people that you want to see in the normal hours of the day. I mean, Mm -hmm. you make it work, but like when I was in culinary school, I had my nights off, so I had a little bit of flexibility. But then when I started working in kitchens, my friends were out having birthday parties and going out in the city and I was
0: working. I don't want to get too far from something you mentioned a minute ago, because I was wondering about Italy. I've visited Italy a bunch. I've worked with a lot of Italian or Italian-American chefs and restaurateurs as like a collaborator. I was so struck by the food last night and how, um, I mean, we don't really say authentic anymore, but how it seemed very, even stuff that wasn't conventionally Mm -hmm. Italian where you could be like, oh, that's, you know, like spit out the Italian name for it, right? It all felt very Italian to me um, and, and very naturally so. Um, And I was wondering what your connection to Italy was, right? And I know you've worked at, like, I know you spent some time at Myelino, and we'll get to that. But you just said you spent, was it a semester in Florence?
1: Yeah, so I did six months in Florence, my junior year of college. Had you
0: been to Italy before?
1: I went once with my family, I think probably three or four years before that.
0: At that time in your life, what was the appeal of it and... How did the food impress you at the time? Because I'm trying to understand if we were going to do a dotted line backward to where the part of your life and career that led you to doing what you're doing now. I'm wondering, is that kind of where some of it begins?
1: I think so. I mean, I think when I was over there, I was realizing more and more that I have such a connection to Italian food. And it's a little bit like family background because... That's what my mom felt most comfortable. I think cooking, just pastas and rustic kind of Italian food. Mm-hmm. My mom's dad is first generation Italian, so that's where it stems from. But he didn't do any cooking. He would put together an antipasta at, like Christmas, and that was his big contribution. That but.
0: was it. He didn't. He didn't make his own wine in the backyard or no. Canned, I wish or canned tomatoes in August. He didn't do any of that stuff.
1: No, but my mom had an aunt that she would speak about, and I asked my grandpa about her sometimes. That had a restaurant. And he'll give me, like, little snippets here and there. Like, she would make pizzas on the weekend and put the dough in big, like, garbage bins. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, just because she was making so much dough at that time. Yeah. Um, which sounds, I guess, not great. But, you know, during that time, that's where they would store it. I don't know if they what, had... It
0: went in a go- oh. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say to anyone who—I mean, you've been to Italy. I've, I've seen some stuff over there from products that are mass-produced. I'll tell you off-air, just because I don't want—it's a distraction from your interview. But it was stuff that would never have a prayer of getting through the U.S. Yeah, like uh, the like the like the New York City Health Department. Forget it. Oh yeah, I mean sure. stuff aging in basements like no climate control i mean it's a whole different mindset yeah and it it works out fine
1: i do wish that we can do a little bit of that like aging salami in the basement or something (laughs) but to get back to the original question like a little bit of family stuff and like a little bit of just living there for six months i just love pasta (laughs) and i think when i originally came here it wasn't even to work here i was just like how did you open this restaurant to jake And then I was like, I actually think that I would open a restaurant very similar to this. And it just made sense to come work with him.
0: Can you put words to what you like about pasta? Or is it just like a love at first sight kind of thing?
1: I feel like it's like the most like comfort food. I feel like everybody can relate over a bowl of pasta. It's like a love language. Like you don't have to speak the same language, but you can all enjoy it. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't think there's any right or wrong (laughs) answer to it. I'm very similar, I'm fascinated by pasta. I love it. Um, I'm also, I don't know if you've encountered this or I don't know if this fits you at all. I feel like for chefs, I don't know if there's anything more personal than pasta. And what I mean by that is, I don't know how many chefs I've known who are either Italian or cook Italian food, Mm -hmm. right? Who won't eat other people's pasta. You're smiling as I say this. Yeah. They won't eat pasta in other people's restaurants. Yeah. Like, they, they won't admit that in an interview. I'm talking, like, I, I could name at least 20 people right now who, they may go to another Italian restaurant, they yeah. will not order the pasta.
1: I see why, but also that's good education. I want to know how other people are cooking pasta because either A, it like, gives you a little bit of a boost being like oh I could do this better or B you're like oh I like the way that they're doing this maybe I can do this similarly and like a little bit of inspiration from that.
0: So you will try pasta? Yeah I will. Okay (laughs) good for you. Okay so where do you go after you finish your education at ICE Mm -hmm. and then what's your first stop after that?
1: So, while I was in culinary school, I did a bunch of stages around the city, and I was between going to Franny's, which was a pizzeria in Brooklyn, just because I really vibed with the chef there at the time. We had a bunch of connections, and he, we still talk to this day. I didn't end up taking the job. I ended up choosing Maialino, just because, you know, Danny Meyer, the structure of the restaurant, it just felt like as a first restaurant, I needed to know how the systems worked, and... It felt like the right fit at the time.
0: hmm And Nick Andor was the chef?
1: Yeah, Nick Andrewer is the chef, but he was opening Mart at the time. Okay. So Jason Pfeiffer was also like at the helm.
0: And what was your first experience of a New York City kitchen like?
1: It was definitely overwhelming. I think the more kitchens you go into you realize every kitchen is different.
0: Especially in this city.
1: Yeah. I mean
0: Because of the physical like the physical thing that people inherit I mean if they build it out maybe that's one thing but like, so many people inherit these bizarre spaces that
1: it's the layout it's the vibe it's the rules do you eat in the kitchen what's your uniform like everything is so different in every kitchen so talking
0: like, or not yeah, music or not
1: exactly yeah. and I think for a long time it was like no music like no talking like put your head down do your job and to learn in that environment is great but now I'm like turn the music up like it's like whatever like let's have a conversation how was your weekend and that I think is so much more fun
0: (laughs) and I'm assuming you don't find that it diminishes anything else
1: I don't think so I mean there's definitely times where I'm like okay we could do this a little bit faster like you're getting distracted and we need to like focus but I think there's a joy in like having conversation and making connections and listening to music and like sort of vibing for lack of a better word yeah like this job is hard it shouldn't be harder
0: (laughs) I mean I'll say the kitchens that I've been in where I have this fantasy that I want to spend a summer at some point just like not in the city probably but like upstate Mm -hmm. or I don't know where maybe California I want to work in a kitchen for summer and the kitchens that make me want to do that are the ones that are like what you're describing where you know people are serious but there's they're talking during the day there's maybe a a boombox in the corner yeah I think great food gets made, and just as great yeah. as in other environments yeah,
1: for, for me. Yeah, for me. Sure. I remember staging at a restaurant, and they were listening to music during service, and I was like, okay, I'm confused how you're doing this, but it's cool.
0: I think there was a time where that was probably pretty normal. Yeah, no, probably. Now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, am I right?
0: I Again, I'm just going by things I was able to pull up and read. You had a goal at some point of working at Stone Barns, Blue Hill Stone Barns. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So... When I left Alino, I was kind of, I wouldn't say burnt out, but I was kind of like, is this what I want to do? I wasn't really making that much money. I couldn't really move into the city.
0: This is after about how long?
1: Two years. Oh. Yeah. So I worked all the stations. At that point, I was like plating. I was like, I can probably stick it out and become a manager here, but I have no other experience. So mm-hmm. it would just feel kind of disingenuine. So I moved to Nantucket for a season and I realized there that I wanted to do this for real. I saw... What it was like to work in New York and how special that was by working in a kitchen, on a ran- like on an island and not having the same <laughs> everything ingredients, olive creativity. oils, creativity, people to inspire. You. I'm
0: imagining like seared tuna with grilled vegetables. Puree. Yeah, I mean nothing wrong with it. Yeah, but yeah, not what you wanted to do. It's interesting because you know I looked over your um, um, like your LinkedIn and mm-hmm. some things like this. And I I was wondering if, and maybe you just answered it, because it sounds like that was the moment, the pivot moment. Mm -hmm. But because you also, I mean, you you spent some time at Blue Hill Stone Barns. Um, You spent some time working for...
1: The Butcher Girls. The Butcher Girls in Dobbs Ferry, which was
0: like a 20-minute walk from where I used to live. In between time in the big city, right? Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, looking over it, if there had been a tension in your life before you committed to being here between rural slash suburban slash idyllic yeah. right, or a place like New York City. Because I think it's unusual once somebody – and I don't mean this at all in a derogatory way. It just made me curious. Mm-hmm. I think it's unusual to toggle back and forth like that. I think somebody yeah. maybe takes their sweet time deciding they want to jump into the urban pool. Right. But then they generally tend to stick around big cities or big food cities. Seems like you've gone back and forth a bit. And I know the pandemic was a factor probably in yeah. some of that.
1: Yeah. I would say the pandemic did have a, a huge factor in it, but you know, Larchmont isn't that far from New York city. So like I was working at my, you know, however many years ago, originally after culinary school, I was commuting from Larchmont. Oh, even the then
0: city. you lived in. Yeah. Home. Okay.
1: So I was always just like, I'm not making enough money to live in the city in the same way that I would want to. So why not just do this commute? It wasn't amazing. Like, I would leave work at 1 a.m. This just and, my next question. Yeah. Like, what time
0: did you get home? Like, 2, 2.30? Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I wouldn't have to be in until... Like, I. it wasn't, like, work-life balance by any means, but I was like, this is what I want to do. So this is what I have to do. But yeah, I think because my family was living in the suburbs, that's what pulled me to the suburbs. But I didn't ever picture myself at Blue Hill Stone Barns, a friend had suggested it to me. And she was like, I think this would be like a really good fit for you. And I went out there and I was like, what is this place? (laughs) Like it was just- You had never been? I had never been. Um,
0: Even to like walk the grounds? Actually no,
1: that's not true. I went and walked the grounds with my sisters probably like a year before we went to the cafe.
0: So we should say, for people who don't know, Blue Hill Stone Barns is on the Rockefeller Estate. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a sprawling, I don't know how many acres it is all in. There's various points of entry. Yeah. One of them, you come through the main gate. You go in as if you were going, the same way you would go if you were going to the restaurant at night. Mm-hmm. And there's a parking lot there and they have the grain bar, which I think is probably the cafe you're talking yes. about. And that's just, you can get like, just like it sounds. You can get granola, you can get a coffee. Mm-hmm. But from that parking lot, you can also just hike the grounds, you know, for hours. So you had done that.
1: I had done that with my sisters. And at the time, I actually knew someone that was working front of house. So I, like, said hi to him briefly. But I didn't really know that much about the restaurant itself yet. Obviously, I knew about Dan Barber, but I didn't really know how the restaurant worked. And then I applied for a position. And that was, like, kind of a funny... Interaction. I sat down with the CDC, who at the time was French, and he wasn't really speaking that much, and I was like, what's happening here? But the culinary director at the time, we made a connection of he was living in Maranek and I was living in Larchmont, and we had a connection there, and I was like, this just feels good. I love the connection to the land, how it's seasonal, the education part of it. But he did tell me right up front, you're gonna be working ridiculous hours. Are you ready for that? Like brunch, Sundays, it was a double service. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm ready for that. They do like a trial period to see if it's a good fit for you and a good fit for them. It's such a commitment. And I was like, how do I know if I got this job? (laughs) And eventually I started working there. I was there for about two years.
0: That's a long time there. Yeah. That's a high stress kitchen.
1: Yeah. It was intense, but it was good. I call it my graduate school experience. Uh, How much of of
0: what, you know, when you were like, what is this place? I don't know what you meant by that. But, like, if you're you're walking the grounds there, if you go the right direction, you'll see cattle roaming That's the cattle that ends up on the plate, Yeah. you know, in the restaurant. There's obviously agriculture going on there. Did you participate in any of the farming aspect? I know you end up going to Butcher Girls and and working there at one point. By the way, for people who don't know, that was... uh, that's, Did they close?
1: No, they're in Long Island City now.
0: But that was, I think it was a subscription-based meat company. Meat meat to table. It was like meat of the (laughs) month or however often they did it. It wasn't a traditional butcher shop. Did your interest in whole animal butchery start at Stone Barns or did that come later?
1: Yeah, actually, towards the end of my time at Blue Hill, I really wanted to work the meat line. And I mentioned that and the timing didn't work out. I was on the pastry station at the time. I was there for a year and I was like, I think I'm going to move on if I can't really learn about butchery right now. And so I left and I still obviously had that interest and wanted to learn about it. I forget how I met the Butcher Girls though. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know how we connected, but I'm grateful that we did.
0: <laughs> so that was your next stop.
1: So actually I left Blue Hill before COVID and everybody was like, what do you do after Blue Hill? Everybody was saying, go like to Europe, go stage. And I did, I went to Europe, I staged around and I'm just like a very like New Yorker nowhere type of person. Family means a lot to me. So I just felt like a pull back to New York. And also, Blue Hills food is so different than any other Michelin star restaurant, and it's hard to explain that, but it is the farm focus part of it was what drew me there. So, like, that was a huge part of why I was there, not because it was, like, Michelin star, if that well, makes sense. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's less, um, I think this is what you're saying, but there's less, as I say, there, you know, there's less knife show-offy knife work Mm -hmm. right and there's less um, pyrotechnics you know the stuff that tends to draw Michelin's attention tends to be very technical what some people call or used to call tweezer food yeah you know stuff that's really fussed over and is very you know makes for great photography blue hill i mean like one. they have that famous dish it's a carrot yeah, right yeah. i mean it's it's is this what you were saying is this what you mean it's like there's less of an emphasis yeah on the graphic part of it and more about the product and the flavor and that's kind of it
1: yeah i think some of the restaurants that i chose to stage at when i was in europe traveling i was like oh this is not the food that i relate to it's really amazing and when you sit down and you eat it like I'm blown away by like beautiful little petty fours wrapped up all nicely but do I want to be behind the scenes making those not really that's not really what right. drives me that's really what I realized when I was stodging in Europe that this type of food is not really what I like to do
0: is that when your mind started to drift to well I guess I should ask it this way okay you worked at Maialino mm-hmm. you loved your time in Florence You love pasta, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, but did you see Italian food as kind of your north star? Is that where you saw yourself headed all this time? Was that even where you see yourself headed now in the big picture? Or is it just happenstance that you're here and you happen to love Italian food, but do you consider yourself Like, if you ask Missy Robbins what she does, it's Italian food. Mm -hmm. That's always been what she does since she was named a chef. That's what she's always going to do. You know, there are people like that. Do you consider yourself like that? Or do you consider yourself still figuring out what you're all about?
1: I mean, I think yes and no. Right now, yes. Future self? Maybe not. I really just want to cook what I want to cook. And And that could change. And that could change because I think it depends what environment you're in. Like right now, this restaurant started as a Roman Trattoria and it's evolved into a prefix menu. It's evolved into other things, but I always have to tell myself this is a Roman Trattoria. I can't really go outside of the box. I have to stay close to roman ingredients whether that's using prosciutto in a dish or using mozzarella in a dish or using italian olive oil whatever it is i need to make sure that i'm not going so far outside of the box because it needs to make sense
0: so along those lines there was a pasta that had um i mean they were fried but had artichokes
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh do you feel like there's an amatriciana on the menu that's a roman dish mm-hmm. do you feel like that kind of always needs to is that like a, an, an evergreen here? Does that yeah. have to always like? Is that the? Uh, this is too old a to reference, but nothing else is coming to mind. You know, is that like you know, Piano Man to Billy Joel? Like, does that <laughs> does that have to does that have yeah. to be in every concert?
1: So I feel like we always want a staple that's like
0: a Roman staple. a Roman
1: staple for sure. Um, and right now on the menu, like our staples are like the suple, the annulodi and the bucatini and which mm-hmm. are, like, super Roman-Italian. Everybody knows what those are. When they look at the menu, it's not confusing. But then, you know, from there, we, like, try and explore different things. Like, okay, in Italy, you get a fried artichoke, and it's beautiful, but it's super simple. How can we branch out from there? And that pasta that you spoke about, um, my CDC, who actually worked with me at Blue Hill... Eddie Berto, he came up with this dish, and he's like, what if we, like, cooked down the artichokes and made them into a sauce? And it's, like, a play on the artichoke alarmana? It has the mint. It has the parsley. It has the artichoke, but it's in a pasta form. So that's how that, like, kind of evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, pulling from the roots, not necessarily so traditional that it's just, like, a fried artichoke on a plate, because that's super simple. We want to, like, elevate it a little bit to make sense with our menu. Um. Yeah, I feel like that's how we come up with a lot of, like, our original dishes that we collaborate on.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. All right, can we can we just talk about the food for a minute? Um, I'm going to free associate. I'm going to say some things that struck me, and then I just would love your reaction. And okay. if there's no reaction, I'll just edit the question out. Okay. okay. <laughs> I feel that um, one of the defining things about Italian food is that it is inherently... And, and I don't mean simplistic when I say this, mm-hmm. but I feel like it is inherently simple. I feel like the food is not put through um, the number of kind of transformative steps that the easiest counterexample would be like French food, right? right. Um, and I felt like that was something, um, for me, that was very much true of your menu from start to finish. You mm-hmm. know, there was the focaccia with um, Uh, the uh, ricotta Mm -hmm. and then, what was it, whipped butter with salt and then olive oil. Okay, that's very elemental. Then there was the crudo Mm -hmm. and the uh, fried squash blossom with induya, right? Mm -hmm. Again, pretty elemental. Um, But each ingredient has to really sing, right? And that came really home to me with the pastas. I was so struck um, by how the defining... Like the primary flavor, I forget, um, I'm going to be bad about this through the whole conversation, <laughs> but I forget what the pasta shape was, but the lemon pasta. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so that's the fagottini. it's like a right. little purse.
0: Like a little purse, right? Yeah. The lemon flavor, to me, on that, that was one of the things that I tasted, and I said to my friend Steve, who I was with, mm-hmm. I'm like, that, that is like so spot on the level of acidity the the intensity of the lemon i'm like it's right on the line i'm like that's not that's not a layup i don't know if people so it looks so simple
1: yeah
0: am i making sense yeah i mean But that piece of it to me i was like oh my god and it's just lemon flavor but i mean part of me wants. can i ask do you use juice and zest
1: yeah so you do yeah that and that dish specifically like it was like Winter was ending. Spring wasn't here yet. I was like, what can we do? Like, we need, like, a filled pasta. And the way it came to be was, like, we just need a menu filler. Like, let's just, like, put this on the menu. And we make the ricotta in-house. Like, it's not, like, you know, a menu filler, like, might sound like a negative...
0: Afterthought. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But then when we put it on the menu... And I was like, what can the sauce be? Like, we have a lot of creamy, like, buttery sauces on the menu. So it's tough to, like, continue to, like, use those ingredients. But I was thinking about, like, a spaghetti al- limone. Like, that makes sense for this. And anytime anyone eats it, they're like, that was my favorite pasta. And I'm like, shit, I need to leave this on the menu. <laughs> like, this is Like, this is now, like, a classic on the menu because everybody loves it.
0: But when it comes out, it's not like, I mean, the pasta looks very pretty. It doesn't look like a show offy thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of them really do. They, the Amatro is pretty stunning. I mean, the way the cheese on top and yeah. the, like it. But, um, well, I'm glad to hear that because that, I didn't know if it was going to seem weird when I said this, but like, I was like, the lemon yeah. flavor on this is perfect. Thank you. Absolutely. I yeah. was so knocked out by that. Um, but that to me exemplifies what I was trying to say, like that, in the eating of it, mm-hmm. as delicious as it is, that is a very straightforward dish, yeah, um, you know, there's the ricotta filling, yeah. um, that was the one that had the favas right yeah. like on mm-hmm. um, garnished, I don't know how you'd call it, but there's some favas tossed in with the, yeah. the with the dish. Um, you know, but everything popped, you know, I was just like that to me was just like a knockout,
1: yeah thank you.
0: yeah. I mean, it's worth. yeah,
1: it's funny because I feel like the simplest things are what people enjoy the most <laughs> at the end of the day, especially coming to a place like this. It's like nobody's looking for something that's super intricate. You don't need to like have three different colors in your dough. It's like just simple, classic things that are nostalgic or just... You can wrap your head around it, like it's not mm-hmm. confusing what you're eating.
0: <laughs> the vongole, that was spaghetti, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, there again, the intensity of the the clam flavor. Um, is, are you doing anything? I don't tell me if these are trade secrets, but are you doing something unconventional there?
1: Not really. I mean, when I first started working here, my boss Jake is like really adamant about not salting the pasta well, and if you've ever worked in a pasta restaurant, like. I was trained your pasta well should taste like seawater, like it should be like so intensely flavored. I'm only
0: smiling because when I went to the French Culinary Institute, Dominic Cerrone, who's now a teacher at the CIA, mm-hmm. he was on, we were salt, we were doing a pasta thing and he was, and he goes, I can still hear him saying, this is a million years ago. Yeah. He goes, and that should taste like Coney Island.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. That's, As if
0: it was gospel. Yeah, I think he said I, it should taste like Coney Island, right? Yeah, you know? that's how I was yeah. trained. Yes. Um,
1: but now, like working with only fresh pasta, and when I say that, I mean like we make all the doughs in-house and nothing's dried or imported. Like when I worked at Maialino, we worked with dry pasta. There were two stations. It was fresh and dry. And that was really fun because you were playing with two different... It's two totally different cookeries. Like you're not cooking the same way. Mm-hmm. So here it's really fast because it's like this was just made this morning it's not going to take that long to cook so when you make a vangole here with fresh pasta you're really cooking it in the clam jus like you're re- like you- and then it's like attracting all of that flavor and that's the saltiness it's not coming from the pasta water it's coming mm, from right like the broth that we made earlier that, that day. makes a
0: lot of sense yeah well when you were talking about your love for pasta earlier that's one of my th- That's one of the things about it that fascinates me is that I feel like when it's made right, there's um, there's not truly a separation between sauce and pasta. Yeah. Like I was taught by some of the chefs I know to always, even with fresh pasta, you just said this. Keep it a little shy of where your head of what the target doneness is, Mm -hmm. and then you finish if you finish cooking it in the sauce, and so it'll absorb.
1: The sauce some of that yeah. sauce
0: instead of that last minute or two it would have spent absorbing water right yeah. and then that becomes it's yeah. fused yeah and right I mean that's yeah I mean
1: at Maialino it was like there shouldn't be any like excess sauce in the plate like it should just be like tight pasta and you shouldn't have anything left over I mean some people are like I want sauce like I want to dip want my to bread to, in right, the sauce right. But well if there's you, even a
0: word for that right yeah but yeah. the
1: standard then when I worked there was it should just be like the perfect amount of sauce to noodle and that's how I try and teach the cooks that cook here. But again, it's hard because it's a different type of cooking.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: With fresh pasta, it's not as intricate as it would be with dry pasta, where you're really emulsifying the noodle into the pan. The sauces that we make here are intricate during the day, but then on the pickup, it's not, it's a quick one-two step. We can't go much Crazier than that, we have four burners in the kitchen and two line cooks. Like.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely interesting. Um, and I always think back to how I was trained cooking pasta, so that I can give guidance. Because when you don't, when you're not trained on dry pasta, it's a little bit different. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Hmm. Okay.
0: I know it's like asking people to pick their favorite kid or whatever, but whether it's on the current menu or mm-hmm. a different season, do you have, I mean, I know some of the stuff you do really hugs tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a, a pasta on the menu that you consider, I won't ask you to call one of your own dishes a signature dish, yeah. but is there something you feel like you're special, however you would phrase it, you're especially proud of, it's something that you feel really gets at who you are as a chef at this point in your development? Is yeah. there is there one that has a special place in your heart?
1: The one that we spoke about, the ricotta, the like. I didn't originally think that that was going to be one of the most popular dishes and have as much feedback as it has, so I think it's, like, grown into being one of my favorites. I think it's kind of artistic in the bowl. It's very geometric, and I put the parsley oil on top, which sometimes comes out a little bit better than... I don't know if you saw that, Mm -hmm. but... um, Yeah, that dish, to me, I think I can kind of, like, play around with. I think once favas are out of season I'll try and put something else in the sauce and that's the one that comes to mind
0: can we talk just for a minute about the vibe here and I don't mean the vibe in the dining what yeah. are you smiling about
1: <laughs> I just like that word oh uh, the
0: the vibe amongst your team yeah uh, you know we're reading so much these today about like the you know the disgruntled restaurant workforce and mm-hmm. how all I mean it's all overstated in my opinion yeah. but Nonetheless, there was a great vibe amongst your team here. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, what is, is it?
1: John. The bartender,
0: John? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was great with customers, mm-hmm. but I also saw him talking to other members of the staff. I should say the drink program is really thoughtful. Yeah. And the selection of liquors and Amaros. I mean, I'm an Amaro fanatic. Yeah. There were several that I'd never tried before. And then is it Charlotte?
1: Yes. Yeah. Is she a manager? Yeah, she's our general manager.
0: She couldn't have been more gracious. Yeah. Everyone, I mean, it's a small, we were, we could, we could, had a straight view of the kitchen. I mean, it just seems like a very harmonious team here. Okay. You just speak to, I mean, you mentioned the thing about, you know, you try to have a looser kitchen maybe yeah. than certain people might, but that can't be the only thing to it. Is, it. is it just how you hire? What do you credit this to?
1: I think we all came into this experience wanting similar things. We want to push towards the same goals, I guess. We wanna come in and feel like we're hanging out with friends and throwing a dinner party. And I feel like that's our intention when we start service. And the way that we've evolved. When I first started here, we didn't have a bar program. We didn't even have a liquor license. And John was working here for four months before we had a liquor license. And it was kind of amazing to watch him build out his bar and how passionate he gets about speaking about certain things. He is a wealth of knowledge, and I get to work alongside that every day, which is crazy. I mean, I don't know that much about Amaros and liquors, and he talks about it out in lineup, and I'm like, okay, so now we know that I like, you know, this artichoke amar whatever it is, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but it's delicious, like, mm-hmm. and and then I can take that and go out to dinner and read an Amaro list better which is you know education that I'm getting here which is I think that's what I love most about working with Charlotte and John we're all sort of like educating each other with Mm -hmm. what we're good at like yesterday I was talking to Charlotte about wine and I was like I don't know enough about the different grapes like i like and i'm a very visual person and she was like maybe you should just draw a picture of italy and start figuring out what grows where and i was like that's kind of a good idea so that's my homework for the weekend your homework (laughs) not that you're a workaholic (laughs) Uh,
0: okay last question for you the art thing do you still make time in your life to you know, aside from drawing a picture of Italy for for your wine knowledge, do you keep active on that front? And how do you think that that initial orientation affects you as a chef in what you do?
1: I definitely try to. It's definitely something that I miss doing more often, but I have to schedule it. Like, life gets so busy. I'm actually, I signed up for an art class on Sunday. There's this new place called Happy Medium. Have you ever heard of it? I think it's in the Lower East. I think you can walk um, from there. Uh, It's, they, they opened sort of recently and they're doing like a, they do different classes. I did a figure drawing class the other week, which was really cool. And then they just opened a ceramic space. But the thing that I like about it is you don't have to be an artist. You can just show up and take the class and they're and, like
0: one off and leave yeah oh so this is like the cooking cl- ice used to do cooking classes yeah institute but it of feel- culinary education used to have these cooking cl- for cl- some class.
1: reason it feels more low-key it's not as intense if that makes any mm-hmm. sense so i signed up for that on sunday which i'm excited about but as far as day to day the last thing i drew was a flyer for a farm dinner that we're doing i don't know if We've really spoken about it, but a friend of mine works at Sycamore Farms, and I've been oh, cool. I've been sourcing from him for the last two seasons, and I've just been poking him to get into the kitchen with me because he's amazing. He did production at Mileno. He makes jams and sauces and sells them at the farmers market, and he was actually the CDC at Popina for a little bit. Oh wow! And he doesn't really cook that often. He does catering events and stuff like that, but I was like. Collaborate. You gotta, you gotta come in to First and we gotta collaborate. I think it would be fun because I sourced so much of what we have on the menu from him. I'm like, I think we should just celebrate what you do and you should come in and talk about your jams and how you make them. So I drew a little sketch of that and he's handing out the postcards at the farmer's market. Oh, that's so cool. So we're going up to the farm as a team. Hopefully there'll be some stuff growing up there. I feel like at that point there should be. But um, so you're gonna
0: bring it back here and do the dinner here? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. We're just going to go check it out so we have a little bit more information mm-hmm. to talk about. And, you know, we used to do trips like that at Blue Hill all the time. Like, we're going to go up to this farm. And that was always a big memory for me, like, in mm-hmm. good team bonding. So I, I try and, like, plan stuff like that here for my team.
0: And how do you feel that initial path you were on? Do you feel like that affects, do you feel like that informs what you do now?
1: I think all of the positive takeaways from all my experiences I try and bring here. Like lineup, we used to do sitting down, folding napkins, and now that Charlotte's the general manager, we're standing up, we're tasting wine, we're interacting with each other, we're talking about what we taste, even if it's not a word that you would say at a table, it's still fun to connect with your colleagues over things that you talk about during service.
0: And that's our show for today. My thanks again to Emily Swain for joining us. If you find yourself in New York City or if you live in New York City, I highly recommend for Scythia Restaurant. Check it out. And while you must order some pastas, don't only order the pastas. I'm not steering you wrong. Check out that restaurant. It's it's a little bit slept on, I think, although they seem to be doing quite well there. Um, but you should check it out. Our thanks also to Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. For their support, try out their free basic version today by visiting getmees. that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z.com forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you'd like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, and or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find the show. Our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram, at chefpodcast is the handle there. And my personal handle is at Andrew T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew. That's where you can follow my writing, dining, and personal adventures. Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back very soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.